It's November 9th. In Columbia, South Carolina, the sun rises over our campuses at 6.51 a.m. Daylight saving has turned our clocks back an hour in a collective consensual illusion that daylight isn't shrinking as dramatically as it has since September. All of our circadian rhythms are adjusting to this shift. The sun sets at 5.25 p.m. The evening commute is in dusk. We just passed the halfway point between the equinox, equal day and night, and the winter solstice, the least light of the year. We're past the tipping point. Today, we have 10 hours and 34 minutes of daylight. On we go. I'm Claire Houle, a writer and instructional designer at the Center for Teaching Excellence at Midlands Technical College here in Columbia, South Carolina. Join me as we once again branch out following the roots and filaments of teaching and connection here at the college. What is the place we allow for failure in higher education? How could we better understand and engage with failure in our work with students and in our professional lives? This is Instructional Ecology. Welcome back. Our season is about facing failure. Today's topic reminds me of the vulnerability of our faces as we go into unknown dark places. Today, we move flinchingly, arms outstretched, into the utter blank unknown, reaching out our hands into obscurity, totally unsure of what we'll meet and whether it will hurt. Once again, we face another topic that higher education as a body has never settled on how to handle, the effect of the personal lives and circumstances of our students and we who teach and support their educational success. Traditionally, higher education asks that people set aside their personal lives and come, as if momentarily reborn, into a learning space with all of their faculties and full attention ready to bring to bear on their education. As Hemingway says, isn't it pretty to think so? But I have clung to this hope. I have found relief and solace in teaching and learning when my life has been full of the kinds of troubles we all face. I taught my first college class three weeks after my father's death, and the students' hope and trust that I would help them was an invitation I could accept, and so my learning to teach was one kind of answer to the profound grief of the loss of a parent. But there have been other times that were not so lovely or so generative. We all also know that many students and those of us who teach and support them have times when rising to the occasion is simply impossible. They struggle in the dark, cold waters of their education, and some of them sink beneath the waves. They vanish. They slip through our fingers as we try as educators to hold on to them. What if we do not let them vanish? What if, for today's episode, we follow those students who are dropping out of sight because of their life circumstances and their basic needs that supersede education? Today, we once again remind ourselves of where we are and where we teach, because that specificity is crucial to looking directly at failure at our own institution. Our college is here to teach the community, and our community is incredibly diverse of experience and need. 
Usually in my work with faculty, when we talk about student need, we mean academic need for support like study or studenting skills, the need for active learning and certain kinds of teaching, and similar such things in our classrooms, both on ground and online. But today, when I say need, I mean need, primary need. Today, we talk about students' basic needs, and here is our guiding question. What kind of effect do circumstances outside of the classroom have on student success at the college? In the immediate follow-up for our season, how could we as a college better respond when student life circumstances are what is impeding success? All of us have had the experience of setting aside our griefs and worries and crises to focus on a task. And all of us have had the experience of sometimes being unable to set aside those griefs and worries and injuries, and we are unable to perform that task because of them. Let's put that into the context of higher education. When we consider failure at the college, our open enrollment community college, we must acknowledge that a solid percent of our students who fail out are doing so because of life circumstances beyond their control. They have no one to care for their vulnerable children or for a vulnerable adult who has no one but our student. They don't have a safe, consistent place to read their school texts, write their papers, practice their homework. They're so hungry that they can't focus on the work set to them. They're so badly treated by someone in their lives that their survival is more important than schoolwork. These are hard, painful things to observe, friends. And yet, we see them every day in our work. Even if our students don't disclose their challenges, yet they are there. Today, my guest and I are going to stumble together through this heart of darkness. She sits on the Strategic Planning Committee for Students' Basic Needs, as well as being a member of Counseling Services. So we'll go right to the source for information about this issue. She and I will ask these questions for which there are currently no answers. Today, it truly will be about asking questions, facing where they take us, and only the hope of answers to come. And we know we can't reach those answers without facing the long dark of passage through inquiry. We have to face the lives of others and their needs. And you'll hear a moment when she and I reach a place of perfect unknowing. You'll hear us metaphorically take each other's hand because there's nothing else to do other than sit together in the dark. And then we find a way to go a little further together. Join us now. My name is Muffy Allison, um, and I currently serve on a strategic planning committee um, supporting students' basic needs here at Midlands Tech. Uh, I have been here for 32 years, and I am in counseling and career services. So um, I actually started as a student, so I am an alumni, yay, and also a first-gen, first-gen um, graduate. And again, I've been here for 32 years, started in the developmental studies area as an administrative assistant, went back to school at night and obtained my bachelor's degree of social work, started teaching our freshman seminar courses, then went back to school again and moved to another campus. I completed my degree in social work and the master's program. Uh, and I left the college in 2003 for a few years, uh, continued to serve as an adjunct professor. And then I came back to the college in um, my current position in 2006. 
as a counselor. Um, and I am on the Beltline campus. Muffy, I am so pleased that you agreed to come and have a conversation today because I find the work that you do every day and the work that you do with the committee that you on so important and interesting. Um, so maybe that's where you could start us is tell us um, about the committee that you've been sitting on for a while and what the goal of that committee is. So we initially started with about seven original team members. Um, so now we have six, one of them retired. Um, but the purpose of our team was to obtain some data or actionable data that we could use to advocate for our students um, to maybe in to improve some of the current services that we that we offer um, or to create you know new ones uh, that we don't have. And our intent was to examine the data uh, and that would allow us to compare ourselves to other two-year institutions that were similar to us and um, those institutions uh, statewide and nationally to see how we ranked. So one of the ways that your committee decided that you could really get a good handle on the data mm -hmm. was by um, asking to have the Hope Center survey conducted at our college. Could you tell us a little bit about what the Hope Center survey is and, and what it might, um, what you hope that it would give us? The Hope Center survey, um, it's, it looks at the basic needs of students um, on, a, on a national level. It's very comprehensive. It's very, it was very well established. Um, and they do this annually. They, look, they do an assessment of students' basic needs. Uh, the survey raises awareness about the uncertainty of basic needs on college campuses. So we were like, okay, Let's look at what we've got to see, again, if we can improve upon what we currently have or create um, some services that we don't offer already. Um, so it includes questions about a range of basic needs from food insecurity, housing insecurity, homelessness, mental health, child care. Um, and also are the students utilizing any public services and campus supports. And then we kind of looked at the barriers to accessing those basic needs. Um, so we did that, we examined the data and it allowed again us to compare ourselves to other two-year institutions in the state and nationally to see how we ranked. Tell us a little bit about what you felt the most significant findings are. I know that you got a lot of data um, and, and I wish we could get into it all, but I, I'd just like to look at the top level that you really, that you and the team really found were most compelling. We found out that students were definitely in trouble as far as their mental health was concerned. Um, I know we just uh, last month, month dealt with um, uh, suicide. Uh, that was National Suicide Prevention Month. So this came in right right on time. Anxiety, students were dealing with a lot of anxiety, depression. Um, and also we looked at the families. That was number, that was one of our highest ranking one students as far as one of the barriers, especially for students not to do well. Um, I know that's a, that may be something else we'll talk about a little bit later. So what we discovered um, once we did the survey is that our students at Midland Technical College, we actually ranked 
very close to students nationally um, with the, um, after the survey was conducted. What surprised us, I think many of us, was that the fact that we have students who are homeless, you know, they are, and these are students, homeless students were defined as even those who were living with a relative, maybe couch surfing at a friend's, um, sleeping in a, in a tent or even in their own vehicle. Um, that was really tough for us to, to believe that we, or conceive that we had a number of students that were in that situation, especially who were truly homeless without, without a place to call home, um, sleeping in a car or in a tent. That's, yeah, that, that's so much. Um, and also, I know that families were also a challenge that, that you noticed in there. Tell me a little bit about what that, what that means when we say families um, as a non-academic challenge. Uh, families being that um, when you have a student and they are parents, it's very difficult for them once a child gets sick or maybe even a relative that they are caring for. When that individual or those individuals get sick, school put gets put on the back burner, which makes sense because they have to take care of those family members. That comes first. And then um, looking at the finance the financial part of it as well. Students use college or tuition to help pay bills. You know, they bank on that return, that financial aid refund, uh, refund um, to help to pay bills. And also um, with the homelessness going back, when you think about students who are also food insecure, um, not having anything to eat. They're on the survey, I think, some of the insecurities we looked at were, I mean, students not having anything to eat for days or even limiting the amount of food that they currently had in order to make it last. Um, so that was that was shocking to know that students were not eating. And so if you're in, if you're in, if you're in a classroom or or taking a class or whatever, and you're hungry, you can't focus on work. You can't focus on, on, on math or in English or whatever. You're, you're, you're hungry and you're thinking, where am I going to get my next meal or where am I going to lay my head tonight? Those are, are definitely things that, that we looked at and just trying to come up with some ideas. So we did reach out to the community uh, coming up with ideas. How do we combat those things here at Midlands Tech? You know, how do we help those students? I think that that's a question that's easy to ask and can take a long time to answer. Um, and you're you're leading me to the place um, that I think is our work together here today, which is if we're going to talk about failure in higher education and at our college, um, we can't pretend that the reasons why students don't succeed are simply to do with what's happening inside of the classroom. Uh, you know, that, that of course is where we spend a lot of our time because that's where our responsibility is quite clear. 
But as you just pointed out, we're an open enrollment college. The community comes to us. And that means that there's a huge diversity of uh, comfort and of need. So from your perspective in counseling and as a committee member, as a member of MTC, what do you think the connections are between the information the Hope Center survey gave you and the reasons that students encounter failure at the college? Well, again, um, a lot of the non-academic reasons, uh, uh, well, we can talk about the academic reasons. I see, um, I see a great deal of students, unfortunately, who are on suspension, um, looking to do an academic fresh start. And that is, is definitely troubling. Um, and when I meet with students, with the students and find out, you know, what went, what went awry when you were here, you know, last time, what, what's going to be different um, this time around? And most of them, I would say, actually say that they were struggling with depression, anxiety. Um, seeking help from therapists, counselors on the outside, uh, because unfortunately we don't offer ongoing counseling or therapy here at the college. We, we do it one or two times and then we refer out into the community. Um, but again, with Midlands Tech being a technical college to your institution, we're that foundation for those students, kind of a springboard, uh, supposedly, um, to the next step, whether they want to pursue an additional degree at a four-year institution, or if they want to stop here, we, we offer, you know, um, education that's affordable uh, and is accessible because we have various ways of learning, whether it's in class or, or online. But still, some students just aren't able to prevail for whatever reason. I also feel, and we're talking about the suspensions, when I mentioned suspensions, you know, 60%, I'd say, of the students that I meet with, probably their first suspension. But then in retrospect, there are about 20% that this is their third suspension. Um, so how do we salvage those students once they're back? And unfortunately, once they're back, they're not, statistically, they're not that successful that they're not on suspension again. Although we are that foundation for the students, I just feel that we can do more. We need, we have to do more. Your colleague, uh, Centrella Gett, said to me in our conversation, she said, you know, um, when I see people coming back who want to come back to the college, uh, but if things are the exact same, Mm -hmm. If the depression hasn't been addressed, um, if the parent is still dying, mm -hmm. if the child just still doesn't have care um, so they can attend class, things are going to be different. Uh, for things to be different, they have to be different. Mm -hmm. um, and I hear you asking, well, what is the college's role in helping things become different? Mm -hmm. And I wonder, um, I, I also feel like you're talking and you know, I know when we've talked before, you brought up Abraham Maslow, mm -hmm. you know, how can, how does that sort of factor into your thinking about the folk that you're talking to who are on suspension and these basic needs? Well, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, 
at, the, at that foundation, you know, you've got things that you that they have to have. There's no way, there's no possible way to reach self-actualization. If I think about uh, the rapper Drake, <laughs> he has a song, um, I started from the bottom, now we're here. And that's where we have to start at the bottom because those are definitely uh, the necessities that you have to have in order to achieve the self-actualization. So if there is no shelter and food and there's no self of belonging, you know, students don't make it. I, I do feel, though, a lot of our students, I mean, they're pretty resilient and they want to be here. A lot of them need to be here in order to move beyond. I just feel that we here at the college, we need a more robust or more structured kind of policies for suspension. You know, most colleges, when you look at the universities, uh, the University of South Carolina, for instance, when students are suspended, they have to be away for a year. We only require one semester. So my question then is what has a student gained in one semester? Um, what have they learned in one semester or what have they achieved in that one semester that will qualify them to come back, especially when the GPA is so very low, like a zero or a 0 0.5 or, you know, the 1.9s are okay, but anything below that is almost, you know, it's, it, it makes you wonder, especially again, and you mentioned um, what's different, nothing, there's not a lot that's changed in one semester. For, for some people, so. There are so many questions. And I mean, this whole season is about asking new questions. And um, I'm beginning to, as I listen to you talk, I, I keep remi being reminded of one of our slogans, which is that we, we meet students where they are. And I'll tell you, in the CTE, I, I serve faculty the way that you serve students, right? I'm in direct service to them. So when I work with them, uh, I use the slogan a lot. Let's teach students where they are. Mm. It's one thing to meet someone, right? It's and that's that that I think is a moment of what of what recognition mm. of connection. But mm. then the work begins together. And so for the faculty, that's teaching students where they are. Let's not talk with you. I'm trying to figure out how we can once again qualify our statement. You and I are agreed. Okay, we're meeting students where they are. And the Hope Center survey has told us, okay, well, this is who you're meeting. I don't know what we do next. We're teaching, we're meeting them, we're teaching them where they are, but they're, you're directing us to a new place that there's something else that we need to do together. I just feel that um, if we could definitely have staff on board, and I know when you say staff these days, it's like, okay, that's money, but to make sure these students are taken care of properly, their needs are being met um, effectively. If we couldn't have a mental health counselor on board, a behavior health counselor on board, um, that would be awesome. For the students who struggle with childcare, we see that a lot, they cannot afford childcare. Is there a way for us to partner with a local daycare and in exchange, perhaps uh, provide um, internships for our students in the early child care program, you know, kind of um, 
bartering system, because those are two things that are definitely needed. Um, students, again, they will drop out if they can't find anyone to take care of the children. And when they're sick, they've got to stay home. And, you know, we have re-implemented the absentee policy. So those are things that, you know, we definitely have to to take a look at. I feel like as I listen again, I feel you saying it's not so much what we need to do. Mm-hmm. The question is really how mm-hmm. could this happen? Mm-hmm. Because we now, once we have the data, we no longer can deny what we sort of suspected anecdotally. Because I, as I recall, you yourself had a student that ended up, you know, was going through the semester and ended up disclosing something really shocking to you about her circumstances. Can can you tell us that story? Wow. Yes. Um, this is definitely pre-COVID. Um, so I'm guessing about seven years ago, maybe, um, a student came in for counseling and she was struggling. She was a good student overall, but struggling with this one particular course. And I don't exactly remember the course, but um, definitely one in the healthcare. And she had taken it maybe once or twice, but she had exhausted all of her financial aid. So she was working um, at a local pharmacy, although she did not reside in Columbia. She was commuting back and forth. She had a vehicle, had a, she was, you know, lived in, had an apartment um, in that town. Well, things changed. Um, I don't know, tables turned. She ended up, I learned, becoming evicted from her apartment. And she would come to see me at least once a week. But she didn't divulge her um, eviction till a little bit later when she had come by and told me that she was, um, she had been run off from one of the local Walmarts in the parking lot. And I wasn't real sure what she meant. And then she shared that she had been sleeping in her car at the Walmart parking lot because they had a lot of light, you know, they had light out and she didn't feel, um, she wasn't nervous. She didn't feel like anything was going to happen. Um, and again, she worked, but she worked and she saved her money so she could pay for the courses that she no longer had financial aid for. So she ended up risking losing her place to stay, her shelter, in order to try and better herself educationally. And it really bothers me because I know when we talked about this a little bit before, I couldn't remember her name. But if she would walk up to me today, I would know exactly, exactly who she was. This is one time I can actually say in my life as a counselor, social worker, that I wanted to do the very unethical thing. And that was to be a be a human, be a humane, and allow her to come to stay with me. 
I'm t- to that degree because I had grown to know her over the course of probably a year and a half. She would come by. And that student never, ever, ever complained about her situation. That's why I remember her so well. And I wish I could remember her name so I could at least check to see where, where is she today? Did she graduate? And to me, that's, that's, that's resiliency right there. Um, but yeah. Just one of those stories that we we get the the numbers on those statistics about the homeless. Uh, we at the college are witness to so many lives, mm. uh, and when a student trusts a faculty or staff member, they honor us by telling us things. I I too have been told mm-hmm. things that I never could have known, uh, and that filled me with emotion. So I'm going to ask you a question in a different way. I've been asking this this season, and we've been talking a lot about student grief with failure. You know, when they fail, they lose things, and that causes their grief. But I have to ask you in the context of your story, what do we do with our grief? Those of us who are teaching and supporting student learning, where is the place for grief when we see their suffering and failure and we're powerless to help them? Hmm. Honestly, Claire, there really is no place. Um, I find myself sharing with colleagues, you know, that helps when you can talk it through and maybe they are able to say, hey, have have you looked at this place or have you, you know, have you thought about it this way? And are you taking good care of yourself? Um, because we, you know, we learn you've got to take care of yourself in order to be able to take care of someone else. As difficult as that is sometimes. Because it does become pretty difficult when you're the one, you know, um, that's always in that seat to help, to empower, to encourage what happens when the tables are turned and and you're in need of it. What are the consequences for us working at the college? Uh, you, you And you've been here for many years. You know, we spend years of our lives doing and because many of us feel very passionately about our work. We really feel that uh, our work has great meaning for us. But over time, what do you feel is the consequence of not having a space for our grief and our emotion over what we witness in their lives? Hmm. Apathy. We burn out. Some of the very things we are warned (laughs) against happens. Yeah. Is there a better way? Is there something we could do differently to stem the burnout that comes from years of witnessing what we witness. There has to be. And if there is, I need to know about it. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, And and again, having that support from colleagues, it's been pretty helpful. It really has because we all have our days. 
we all have our days um, when we just need some validation, a little extra push to know you're doing the right thing or to continue the work. And you mentioned earlier, yes, I've been here a very long time. Um, and I continue on because I enjoy the work. It's so gratifying to see students that you met two years before that they are marching across the stage with their diploma or degree or certification. It's that's that's priceless. That's an amazingly great feeling. I've been so glad to be connected uh, now because uh, you and I are doing similar work in different parts of the mm -hmm. college. Um, so I'll ask you uh, in solidarity, what what is your committee planning next? It sounds like you're asking the questions. What do you think? What's next for the committee? And how can our community that's listening be involved? Well, you know, we've held, Claire, we've had three listening sessions and we did get some really good feedback. We had listening sessions for for our community here, for students and for um, our colleagues at the college. I just say, if I ask if people, if you can just be supportive, um, offer up ideas, nothing, we're not, <laughs> we're, we're not gonna, you know, we want everything. Um, and at this juncture, now that we've had the listening sessions and we have the evidence, um, we're just hoping and praying that something good materializes. Now we're continuing to do research and still looking at other things that other colleges are doing that have worked. So um, we're ready to put some of this stuff into action because again, we have the data, we know what it says. We know what, you know, what, you know, what our, what our students look like pretty much. So, again, how do we 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 keep them? How do we help them and not lose them? I'm wondering, as as you try to, to do this work, um, one of the hardest parts is getting busy people to maintain contact with a project because we're all so busy. We, we all work so hard. We have so much responsibility, each one of us. Um, and I know that sometimes when we are in a listening session or a conversation, we feel great empathy and great excitement. But, you know, when we're not talking to someone, we, we kind of forget we return to our own concerns. How do you think we as a community can arrive at a sustained change, not just that momentary feeling of, oh, my gosh, this is an emergency. We've got to do something about it. And then, you know, the Zoom ends and you're back to the email and all of your tasks. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I mean, I, this is a terrible question to ask. It's so hard. But what, what do you think we could do to sustain the concern and action that changes lives? And that's a really good question, Claire. Um, one that I've been pondering for a little bit um, because we do tend to have this Band-Aid effect. You know, we're going to fix it now, right now, while while it's in our face. But right. Right. afterwards, we forget about it. Um, does it help if we constantly send things and put it in your face to remind you? No, it doesn't. That's been my experience. It does not help. Um, it's an immediate 
concerned, concerned when it's right there, when it's immediate. And as you said, when it's over, we don't even think about it um, because there's always something else coming up that needs our attention. So I, I honestly cannot even, I can't answer that. I wish I could. I wish I could. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll find it. Hmm. What, what do you hope will happen? That people will, that we as, as a community, as a college, that, that we will pay more attention to the types of situations and realize that if one person is struggling, then we all are. I mean, that's one person. And that one person, it, they matter. We all matter. You know, I am so over the NIMBY effect. You know, <laughs> if it's not happening over here, then I'm okay. And it's so easy to escape into that little backyard and they're having issues over there. Well, well, it doesn't doesn't affect me but we should all be affected by it because you know at the end of the day we need each other you know we're, we're not able to make it by ourselves <laughs> that's just it that's 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 true you know um when we started this podcast we began it on the principle that we are an ecosystem mm. But we don't always perceive our connections. We, like you say, we sort of, we like to imagine that we're, we're just fine by ourselves. But in fact, our lives and our fates are so intertwined. Um, Mm -hmm. How does that strike you if we began to think of our community as an ecosystem that was dependent, that so dependent on each other um, in so many ways, great and small? Does that ring it all true for you? Definitely. And I think um, COVID allowed a lot of us to see that. A lot of us to see how much we need each other. And and I'm, I'm okay. I hope it's okay to share that, you know, I've had it twice. <laughs> I had it when it initially came out and the fear was very great because there was nothing, you know, everyone was calling and you've got to do this. You should do this. Don't do that. So I I didn't think I was going to make it based on so many people dying. And when you're in a space by yourself for that long and thinking irrationally, yeah, I need people. We need each other, whether that be, I need you financially. I need you for therapy. I need you to help me get through this course. I mean, it doesn't matter. We we kind of, we we need each other. We need each other. And the the title of the season is Facing Failure. Mm. That's our mission is to just look directly at it first. And maybe the rest will follow. And that's what your committee was doing. You're looking directly. Mm -hmm at some very difficult things that cause students to fail out of school or to fail tests or to you know have components and also to feel that sense of failure, to have that feeling, this is never gonna work for me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even know why I try. And which as you know, can be just as deadly as, as anything else, just that feeling. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, um, what do you think as you and I look together at 
failure in lots of ways, maybe even the failure of our college. Mm-hmm. What do you think we are we could do in order to see failure differently and to support our students in new and better ways so we can begin to move away from those those kinds of experiences or at least to I mean we're always going to have failure mm-hmm. could we do it differently what do you think we if we're facing it right now what could that bring us hopefully more open conversations um and to embrace failure I mean <laughs> I remember taking the social work exam for the master's level um and I needed a 70 and I earned a 70. A 69. Oh my word. <laughs> I thought my life was over. I, I mean, um, no one could tell me. I, I didn't want to hear it. And honestly, Claire, for about 15 years, I shied away from that test. Every time I thought about it, I got knots in my stomach. Mm. Um Because failure isn't, it's not a part of our vocabulary. Even, you know, you tend to learn what you learn first at home. And you've got to, you know, you have to be successful. There's no way you've got to be, it's competitive and you've got to beat this person. You've got to, um, but never to say, well, it's okay if you didn't do as well as you wanted to this time. You know, it really is okay. All right, let's try it another way. Let's do it. um, Let's try it again. Get yourself up, dust yourself off and try it again. Um, But again, our society says no way. You know, failure is not acceptable. And that, I see that a lot, you know, and that brings about the nervousness. And the anxiety, you know, I'm depressed because I can't, I know I can't do this work. And that leads me to, um, you know, Claire, into thinking what do or what I was taught as a social worker, because we would encounter patients that we didn't. What happens if you're not, if you cannot help a person? Yes. Some people are beyond that. And unfortunately, I hate to admit it, that I've had students that I've felt not that they weren't worthy of being helped. We had exhausted everything. And what do you do? What do you do? Mm-hmm. I think I think that those are questions we have to live with. Um, and I think that it takes a lot of courage to continue to ask them over and over, because maybe this is the time we'll get a little bit closer Mm -hmm. to -hmm. something um, and a a better appreciation that oftentimes there is not a single answer. Mm -hmm. Like you said, I mean, you have to teach, you know, just take each student. Mm -hmm. We have to meet them where they are. We have to teach them where they are. We have to do Whatever this other, this third thing that you and I are trying to figure out, mm-hmm. we've got to figure out. And we can only do that together. Um, who knows what's possible when we keep talking with each other. And each person's unique, you know, so learning styles are different. 
So we also have to be willing to address those styles. But do professors have time to address every style of learning in college? That's uh, that's uh, a lot of my work, which is to mm-hmm. work with faculty to figure out, okay, well, how can we make our lessons mm-hmm. accessible in many ways? Mm-hmm. Can we make them active? so that students get better transfer, a better chance Mm -hmm. of learning something. Um, Those are also eternal questions, you know, because teaching is one of the most dynamic arts that exists. Uh, you You can teach for a lifetime and you'll never arrive. I think that's one of the joys and great frustrations of the profession is there's, Uh there's no ceiling. You can just keep going. Um, and learning is the same way as, you know, we learn our whole lives and uh, there's, there's always something more. We can always get something new or something better. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so as we, as we come to the end of our time together, um, is there any other perspective that you want to offer on thinking about failure or grief in higher education or your hopes for the future? Claire, I hope we can reach each and every one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Successful. Yeah, Mafia. I live in a dream world. But um there with you. Yeah. I I just I just see the glass always as so half full or a little bit more than half full. Because it's 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 possible. We've just gotta figure it out. We've got to figure it out. Um, because these students are very precious. And they're here again for a reason. They're here for a purpose. So glad to sit here in possibility with you. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. I'm always excited. (laughs) Me too. I return. I think that that's, that's, has always been my answer is that I return Mm-hmm. to that place of possibility and excitement because you can't always stay there. You know, you get some hard knocks and there's some hard days and you think, oh, you know, wow, this is, uh, oh, <laughs> uh, I wonder what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. But then to return. To return. To return. That's what we can do. I love it. Friends, we have the Hope Survey Report on our website for this episode. Follow the link in the show notes to read it and see all of the details. This is the first season we've had guests from Counseling Services on the podcast. How good it is to explore this part of our ecosystem. Muffy and Centrelle, by virtue of their expertise and positions, move in spaces and possibilities and connections that faculty and other staff positions don't always encompass. By being in community with each other, we all bring a perspective not possible in other places. And that is what allowed me to ask that new version of our question about whether there is a place for grief in higher education. It was Muffy's grief and pain over her student living in a car that allowed me to open up that line of inquiry for our project. What do we, as witnesses to lives, do with our grief when our students suffer? and when they leave the college without having met their goals. Our grief is real, and as you heard, many of us don't know where to put it. Perhaps asking these questions, being willing to go to these dark places, will allow us to find some answers eventually. Let's keep asking, keep talking, 
Keep thinking and dreaming and hoping until we get to the new place we crave to create. Join me next time for another story of failure. And it won't be just one story. We'll be with Hameen Shabazz in advising. Amin's early life in Colombia was full of painful and dangerous circumstances, and his educational life reflected that experience. His life circumstances, which led him to years in prison, allow us to further our mutual thinking on the connection between basic needs and success. Amin will talk about how his path led from prison to MTC, and how he eventually joined our mission to help others negotiate failures and delays, just as he has done and to come to a new place of success and new life. Join me next time as we hear another voice in our community explore their own failures and how those hard experiences are integrated into a rich and joyful life. Join me deeper into the darkness of fall and further into the web of our community. 